You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means when we read the Bible, uh, we are hearing God speak. Today's passage is Psalm 27, so please follow along uh, in your Bibles or on the screens on either side of me. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? When evildoers come against me to devour my flesh, my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deploys against me, my heart will not be afraid. Though a war breaks out against me, I will still be confident. I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple. For he will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, Lord and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Friends, let's pray together. Almighty God and loving Father, may the words that I speak now be your words. May you graft them into our hearts and work in us so as to bring forth in us the fruit of good works. And we pray this for the honour and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, It was a number of years ago now, uh, nevertheless, it was the 75th anniversary of, a man, of the death of a man whose work has shaped many Christians around the world. He became a Christian in 1931. He called himself the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. That's no minor claim, is it, really? <laughs> um, perhaps there are some of you here who know his name. Perhaps you have read a book or more of his. His name? 
Clive, Staples, Lewis. Those who know of him know of him as C.S. Lewis. I can understand why he just dropped it to C.S. myself. Anyway, as it happens, uh, this great Christian man and author wrote two books about his conversion. Uh, One was called Surprised by Joy. And the other was called The Pilgrim's Regress. Now, he tells the story of how the search for joy ultimately led him to God. At the end of Surprised by Joy, he calls that search for joy a signpost on the road that leads to God and uh, the longing for joy that he felt deep in his psyche was ultimately fulfilled in God. Now, as I reflect on the conversion of Lewis, it's clear to me that his longing is a common one. If you haven't experienced it, you will. You see, we all long for happiness, don't we? Our advertisements proclaim it. Our movies witness to it. Our media constantly harps on it. Our language reflects it. Self-help books really just uh, try and lead us to it. And yes, 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 we all want joy. We long for that mysterious state of blessedness where all things will be sorted out and where our whole existence will be saturated by warmth and contentment. Uh, Friends, the search for the state of happiness and blessedness is a common desire amongst all humans. Um, And it's one that regularly is addressed in the Psalms within the Old Testament. In fact, the very first word in the book of Psalms in its original language is the word for happiness or blessedness. The psalmist cries, how blessed are those who? And like C.S. Lewis, the book of Psalms clearly connects our longing for this state of blessedness with God himself, our longing for God. And all of those who know God and experience him experience the same desire as as the psalmist has expressed. They know with Lewis and the psalmist that happiness, blessedness is tied up with God. We know that. Those of us who are Christians know that. We've read our Bibles. We, we, and so, so we long for God too. And we cry out to God. The deepest yearning that a Christian has, I think, is for his company. If you've come to know God, you want more of him. Friends, today I want to explore this theme by focusing on one psalm. But my focus today is on on Psalm 27. So I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open or digital versions or whatever it is you use. Psalm 27. And uh, as we get underway, I want to say that this Bible talk today is not usually the way I go. Okay, there's something different about this today. I usually just work systematically through a passage. You know that, and that's what I, where I'm most at home. But today's Bible talk is much more a personal talk. Right? You, you are going to get a bit of Andrew Reid today though you won't recognise him at times, I think. Uh, it's a personal exploration. So I hope you'll come with me as I reflect on this, this psalm and this theme. And I, my hope is that my own personal reflections will be helpful for you um, and uh, will have some resonance with you. And you will listen and say, yeah, Andrew, I think you're on to something. So let me start by telling you a bit about my Christian experience. 
My Christian life came about spectacularly. Um, I had grown up in a Christian family. However, I rejected the faith in Christ when I was sent from Papua New Guinea to a boarding school in Melbourne, not that far away, a little bit far away from here, but certainly in this city. I became a disciple of Jesus. Um, and, and then on the evening before my 18th birthday, when we had moved interstate, I was dramatically converted. I became a disciple of Jesus. I embraced the faith of my parents. Um, and the intimacy that I experienced with God, let me tell you, friends, was intense and close. As it can be for an 18-year-old, I knew God. I knew that God knew me. I knew that God loved me in Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you that today, as time, today that as time has gone on, that intimacy has lessened. At times, I don't get me wrong, the desire for intimacy with God has not diminished. I love God and I want to be closer to God. The longing for God has not lessened in me, but the experience of intimacy has. And so this talk represents a sort of um, somewhat personal reflection on Psalm 27. You're getting a bit of me and a bit of the psalm, as it were. Hopefully, mostly the psalm. So, I offer it to you today because it allows me to explore a theme that I think has been woefully neglected by Christians. And I hope it opens a door for you in your relationship with God. And it also allows me to practice what I'm preaching. So here we go. Let's get underway looking at this psalm together. Have your Bibles open, as I said. First thing I want you to notice is that there are two or three thoughts that repeat themselves through this psalm. Look at verse 3, and I want you to notice the word contented or contentment. Though an army deploys against me, says the psalmist, my heart will not be afraid. Though war breaks out against me, I still will be confident. Now I want you to look at verse 13. So flip down. The note of confidence is still there. Our psalmist says, I'm certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. The New International Version says this, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. You see, David, the writer of the psalm, this psalm begins with great confidence, boldness. But now I want you to notice that these two expressions of confidence bracket some other common words. In verse 4, David uses the word desire. I have asked one thing from the Lord, he says. It's what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, uh, gazing on the beauty of the Lord, seeking him in his temple. Verse 4. You see, David's intense desire is for what? Is for God. He seeks God. He longs to be in God's presence. The one thing he asks for, the thing that he seeks above everything else, is to be in the presence of the Almighty God. To gaze upon his beauty. But now look at verse 8. Can you see it there? David talks of seeking. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I seek your face. You see, our psalmist, David the king, knows that what God wants is for people to seek after him. 
And he's determined that that will be the shape of his existence. That is who he will be, a seeker of God. His face he does seek. Let me reiterate. You see, this psalm begins and ends with confidence. Within these statements of confidence, though, there are statements about God, about David meeting with God, seeking God. But now I want you to notice something about the structure of this psalm. Again, have a look at it. You see, Psalm 27 falls into, I think, two neat sections. Um, Verses 1 to 6, a song of praise. They praise God for who he is and what he's done. It's grand. They praise him confidently for what he will do in the future. He is light and salvation, verse 1. He is the stronghold of David's life. Uh, His reason to not fear, verse 1. He will hide David under the cover of uh, uh, of his tent. He will lift up his head above those of his enemies, verse 9. Sorry, verse 6. He will be the cause of singing and making music, verse 6. And then this note of praise disappears in verse 7. And verses 7 through to 14, so quite a lengthy stretch. The second half of the psalm, you see, is not a song of praise. No, it is a lament. The tone is one of desertion and protest against God for his absence, as it were. Things are no longer good. God no longer seems near and present and ever present. Hope. No. David worries that God has hidden his face from him. Verse 9. That he's rejected him or forsaken him. Verse verse 9 again. So what happens is he does the right thing. He cries out to God. He seeks answers. Verse 7. He urges God, don't hide your face from me. Verse 9. Nor give me up to the will of my adversaries, verses 11 and 12. These are the two halves of this psalm. Can you hear it? A song of praise and a lament. And I want you to notice something else. Uh, Friends, do notice that both the song of praise and the lament have one thing in common. Both are united by a common theme of desiring God's presence. That's common throughout the whole lot. God's presence. In verse 4, the psalmist has one thing he asks of God in the success of life. He desperately wants to soak up the presence of God. In verses 8 and 9, he has one thing he asks for in God's uh, uh, seeming absence. He wants God to turn absence into presence, to be present to him. And so whether it's in praise or in lament, one thing is on his mind. His greatest longing is for God. For in the Lord God is fullness of life. He knows that more than anything else. In him is blessedness. In his presence is everything David wants and needs. In his presence, David thinks he can do the things outlined in verse 6. He can have exaltation above his enemies. He can sacrifice with shouts of joy in the presence of the eternal God. He can sing and make music to him. Now, friends, I want to spend some time reflecting on what we've found here. You see, this psalm unlocks, I think, some very deep truths that Christians will not often confess, except in the hiddenness of their own bedrooms, as it were. 
I want you to see and understand that underneath this psalm there lies a fundamental premise. Can you see what it is? The fundamental presence is the first commandment. There is but one God. There is but one God and all of life and its richness is found in him. David knows this and he believes it and he's convinced about it. Second, David believes and knows that this God is the creator and the redeemer. This God that he knows. That's both implied and stated throughout the psalm. In verse 1, David rejoices that God is his light and his salvation. He's the stronghold of his life. In verse 2, he records that God sustains him and redeems him from his enemies. That's the second truth. God's the creator and redeemer. Third, David is convinced that in this God, there is fullness of life. David is clear that on every level, his greatest longing is, his highest desire is, the goal of his search is the presence of God. That's where life is found. For in his presence is the fulfillment of all that he wishes for. Can you see what's being said here in this psalm? The fundamental longing that David feels is shaped by his creatureliness. The fact that he is the creation of a creator. He is a creature. He, he like us, was made by the creator for him. God has fashioned us, friends, for God, for him. And the first three pages of the Bible and the last two pages of the Bible says, that's what you were made for. You were made for the presence of God. You were made to be related to the God of all the earth. They make it clear that we find ultimate peace and joy and happiness when we're in untainted relationship with him. That's how God made us. God made us for him. And fullness of life is found in him. So there's the theological and theoretical framework. Okay? I hope you've got it, grasped it, planted in it, as it were. It's clear in its proposition. There is but one God. This God's the creator, redeemer. In him alone is found fullness of life in this world. Full human fulfillment is found in the presence of this God, the God of all the earth. That is what life is about. And God has sown into our being an ingrained longing for him and his presence. That's how God made us. Friends, God made us for him. Now I want to tell you about reality. And because we started with C.S. Lewis, I think it's helpful, that great Christian philosopher and writer, I thought it was only appropriate to turn to him again. That C.S. Lewis, that those of you who have read his works, love. Let me read to you some of the jottings from a notebook after his wife died. She was the love of Lewis's life. He, he was a single man for a large part of his life and finally he found this woman. And he grieved when she died. And early in his grief, he wrote these words. Listen carefully. Meanwhile, he says, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. 
when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy you're tempted to feel his charms upon you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It, it, it might as well be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once, and that seeming was as strong as this. But what can this mean, says Lewis? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so absent a help in our time of trouble? Friends, I bet none of you have been able to have felt that you could open that door, or not many of you, some of you here will, I know, have said those sorts of things even under your voice. You can hear the grief of this man, can't you? I, I love it that he's so open. Can you hear his doubt? Can you hear his yearning after the God he has known and loved? And if you have grappled with believing and knowing in God, I wonder, have you been there with C.S. Lewis? Have you been there with him? You see, this is the world of reality. It's the world of the Bible. You see, the very first recorded prayer in the Bible is a lament. <laughs> the very first prayer in the Bible, a lament. It's lament of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. When God threatens him with distance, he cries out in grief. In verse 13, he says to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. The lament is not just the first prayer after Eden. It saturates the Old Testament. You see, approximately one-third of the Psalms, one-third are lament Psalms. The Lord Jesus himself uses a lament psalm in his dying breath. Or breaths. He cries out, can you remember? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He records, and, and not only that, um, the Apostle Paul laments in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He records how he pleaded with God to remove from him the thorn in the flesh that he had. A messenger from the Satan who was harassing him. The Christian martyrs in Revelation 6 lament under the altar. Do you remember they cry out from under the altar where they've been persecuted? The souls of those who have been slain for the word of God, for the witness they've borne out to God and suffered for before God is this. 
Lord, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge their blood? Oh, sorry, and avenge our blood. You see, people throughout Old and New Testaments ask these sorts of questions that C.S. Lewis asked. And those questions look in our psalm as well today, Psalm 27. You can see it in the way the psalmist begins and the way he ends. Right? Have a look again at Psalm 27. David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord's the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? Can you hear? It's strong, triumphant, exulting. But flip now down to verse 14. Listen to it. David now says, Wait. For the Lord, be strong. Let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. You see, the triumph and exaltation are gone at this point. Doubt has entered. Plea has entered. The reality of God's presence has been replaced by a wish for his presence. The yearning for his nearness. You can see the very same thing at the end of the book of Lamentations. Read the book of Lamentations sometime. You can see it in other lament psalms. Triumph is replaced by urging patience and strength while God is waited upon to be he whom the psalmist knows him to be in the past. In the words of Lewis, though, the silence is emphatic. The house of God Seems empty. There are no lights in the windows. If the presence of God, the presence of God seems gone in many of these psalms, read them. My practice, by the way, is to read a psalm a day if I read nothing else, because it confronts me with reality and helps me. Um, all you can do, though, in this situation that I've pictured before you now, is to wait for the God you know Him to be. Or you can wait for him to be the God you've known him in the past and you expect he will be in the future. Friends, let me be very frank with you. This psalm today records for us what many God believers have at times felt. In pastoral ministry, and I've been doing it for 40 years, you see it regularly. It records what we know and experience in the daily reality of relating to God. We long for God because he's made us that way. We long for God. We long to be in his presence, to gaze upon his beauty. But so often we find ourselves caught between two statements and two states of existence. On the one hand, we find ourselves declaring, God is my God. <laughs> he alone is God. He's my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And on the other side, we find ourselves saying to ourselves, not out loud probably, but to ourselves, be patient. Wait for God. He is not, but he will be what I've known him to be in the past and I'm not, but I'm not what I'm not experiencing in the present. 
And in between those two statements, that starkness of those two statements, in between them, there's a reality. Do you know what that reality is? It's filled with desire, anticipation and joyous thanks, but also with anguish and pleas and questioning of his justice and judgment, fear of abandonment, protest and longing to be at home in his presence. So friends, this is life. I wonder if you have been there. I have. Heather, my question for me and for you is this. What do we do while we wait? <laughs> what do we do while we wait? For we know that God wishes us to be in his presence and to be fed and succored by that presence. We know that God wishes us to be in his company. And so what would God have us do in this world broken that we live in? While we wait for him to be what we know him, he has been in the past and will be in the future, but we're not experiencing in the present. What do we do? Well, I'd like to suggest three things. If you're taking notes, if you're not taking notes, this is, this is the one to take notes for. I'd like to suggest three things. First, the book of Lamentations, C.S. Lewis, this psalm and all the laments of scripture of which there's no shortage would urge us, do not fudge. Do not fudge. Like C.S. Lewis and like the psalmist, let's talk to God about it. In his seeming absence, we can approach him, you see, with boldness. We can plead with him, be honest with him, and we can express our anguish to him. And I wish Christians would do it more. And tell him, oh Lord, we seek you. And we long to be back in intimacy with you. We can talk to God. And we can say to him, God, I'm not experiencing you as I expected to. What we experience is, I cannot explain it away. This is reality for me. It is to be worked through. And that's what happens in this psalm. He works it through. So in my 40s, friends, this is not in my sermon notes, but I'll tell you. I became clinically depressed. I had to grapple with this one. And it still comes every now and then, the depression comes to me. And the great joy was I found other people in the Bible had experienced it as well. I put, sorry, again, this is right off my notes, so. I put some of David's Psalms through a depression scale index. <laughs> And he comes out depressed. <laughs> so if, if you experience it, you're in good company. And he's got some good words for you. Anyway, even our Lord Jesus, I think, experienced some of this. Second, we should bring, like I'm doing now for you, bring out this doubt and this angst into the open. You see, we live in a Christian world that has forgotten lament except in the privacy of our own hearts. But why, why would that be? I think the reasons are multiple as to why it's happened. But they're deplorable. You see, I'm with those who argue, such as Klaus Vesterman, a great Old Testament scholar, that there is no text in the New Testament that would prevent a Christian from lamenting. 
There is no text that would express the idea that faith in Christ excludes lamentation from a person's relationship with God. No, friends, many Christians are rightly lamenting, along with me, the loss of lament amongst Christians. We don't sing. I mean, when was the last time you sang a lament in church? We don't do it, do we? We don't sing lament anymore. Our songs are all songs of triumph. Now, by all means, let's sing songs of rejoicing and triumph. It's lovely to do it. It's good to do it. Let's rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let's urge each other on when we find the Lord to be our light and our salvation. And let's, let's do it together. But friends, let's also weep with those who weep. Let's cry out to God alongside, holding the hands of, on behalf of those who groan and sigh because life is not yet what God promised it would be. And let's allow ourselves to voice before God just as David and Paul and the saints under the altar did. Our feelings. While I'm saying this, I wonder if I might plead for return to reading the Psalms regularly in church. Cranmer, the person who wrote the uh, Anglican Church prayer book, he did it. And it's great, he made you read a psalm a day. That meant you couldn't miss lament at some point. (laughs) Um, Dropping the reading of the Psalms, I think, has stripped away from us one of the few remaining expressions of lament that remain in our overly triumphalist Christianity in today. today. We are overly triumphalist. Friends, lament is not blasphemy. It's an appropriate, honest response to God in a world which is still subject to futility and not yet finalised. About a world not yet without sin and its consequences. Not yet perfect. And the groaning about it is a godly response. And the Apostle Paul knows this. He tells us that God's rich gift of the Spirit within us helps us because God gives us sighs and intercedes with sighs through his Spirit in our lives. So first, let's not fudge about the realities of life in God's world. Second, let's bring our doubts and angst out into the open with God and even with each other. And third, let's do as Lewis and the psalmist does. Let's nurture our desire for God in the midst of distress. You see, though sometimes subjectively we feel as though God is to be is distant, we know that fullness of life is found in him. We're convinced of that beyond a shadow of doubt. Why? Because we know he's, he's uh, worked for that in his son dying for on our behalf. We know he alone is God. He alone is worthy of worship. In his presence alone is fullness of joy. And he loves us. And we can be confident in that love. We will see his goodness. And fourth thing, final thing, let us be God's Christian people. And let us acknowledge that we have a guarantee that David had not has not got. 
did not have. You see, he knew himself to be formed by God and intimately known by God. But we know, we know, if we're Christian, the Lord Jesus Christ has died for us and formed an unbreakable bond between himself, his Father and us. An unbreakable bond if we are Christians. We are his people. We are bought with the blood of his Son at his behest, ransomed to be creatures of his for eternity, children of his for eternity destined to be gathered around his throne in everlasting presence, in his everlasting presence, without pain and without tears. We are members of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, citizens of the city of the living God. Our names are written in his book. We are those who belong to his son, Jesus the Christ. Friends, it's for that reason and that reason alone we can join with David. Even though we can identify with his anguish, we can also identify with his brimming confidence. Hey, listen, and if you're with me, say these things in your heart. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I dread? But when anguish comes, friends, and it will, here's some other words to say. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord to be who he is. Friends, let's pray. Father, we come to you today lamenting our sinfulness. Lamenting our coldness toward you and your Son. We come honestly longing for a greater depth of emotion and honesty in our relating to you and each other. But mostly, Father, mostly today we come rejoicing in your Son through whom we have been brought near to you. Thank you that through him we can be sure that you are for us. So we pray this in his name. Amen.